This week on How to Succeed in Evil, a woman of many epithets and a lovely laugh. I usually do a Vorpal Blonde, Schrodinger's Brat. Um, sometimes I say Midas's Touch. <laughs> it depends on my mood. <laughs> Shauna Germain, a woman with a lovely, delightful, bubbly sense of evil and a strange, dangerous desire for genetically modified pets. Why not a hamster? <laughs> right, right. And a couple of dogs that are semi-wild. And... Even a poisonous hamster. Like, at least you could see them coming. Did it make those? <laughs> I want one of those. Some men just want to watch the world burn. World burn. This is How to Succeed in Evil. You need people like me so you can point your fingers and say, that's the bad guy. Just want to watch the world burn. An ongoing exploration of what makes bad guys good. No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. And I'm Patrick E. McLean. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world it didn't exist. You know, I like, I really, really like. Uh, villains who love kittens is <laughs> sort of my phrase for that, which is, you know, these villains that have this sort of soft spot, this this sort of big-hearted weakness, this this thing that makes them sort of empathetic and sympathetic, and you can feel a compassion toward them at the same time that you're saying, oh my god, I can't believe they're doing that awful thing. Um, so I, I guess I really like villains that are that are very human, that are that don't have this sort of one-dimensional, oh, I'm evil, and, uh, you know, you don't know why, and but this sort of... Um, the sort of evil we can understand that we kind of all know in our hearts is is part of ourselves as humans, and, and that if we just unlocked that door, we would be very scared of what we saw behind it. Yeah, yeah, the idea that, that anybody is really capable of anything at any time. You know, if you put somebody in a different situation or a different set of um, circumstances, you know, it's a really terrifying idea. I believe it's very true, but I think you have to have some groundedness as a person to really look at yourself and go... Oh, yeah, I, you know, I could see how that could be done. Right. Well, even, you know, the studies that they did where they, they took two groups and gave one group power and kind of watched what happened and said, you know, all you people with red shirts have all this power and all you people with, with uh, blue shirts, you don't have any power. And, and they sort of watched how the people with power started to get abuse that power really quickly. Is, um, is, is that the Stanford prison experiment you're talking yeah, about? Yeah. yeah, that thing's sinister. I know it's just it, it is such a such a perfect example of how you know you can be you can even start off grounded right and then you have this experience where someone gives you something and you don't have the tools to handle it um, and inadvertently or or purposefully you sort of become the villain. Yeah, I, I think that um, it, it was a, it was a theme that I used. It was really where I started um, in the in the original How to Succeed in Evil books because I said okay let let me try and think about people with superpowers here in a, you know, slightly deeper way. Um, not that I have anything against the way comics, you know, I, I love comics, but, um, you know, it's slightly different. And the analogy I used was if you take a kid who's really good at basketball and you pull him out of high school and you send him to the NBA, what happens? Right. They just fall apart. They don't have the ability to handle all the fame themselves, all the opportunities, all, you know, all the pitfalls that are just laid out for them on a platter. They don't have the sort of the character to do it. 
which is right and if they don't turn that outward they turn it inward right which is a whole other sort of form of evil which is evil to oneself because they can't handle that you know we see it all the time they can't handle the fame they can't handle the pressure they start to be self-destructive um, and that's a whole different kind of like evil that, that that sort of loops in on itself like this closed poem and and it's very hard to get out of i think well i, I i'm really liking this conversation i really um makes me want to look into your stuff more deeply because this <laughs> nuance is is what i want out of fiction right Right. It's what I want out of a great story. And usually you can't, I mean, film is, film is a mess now. Film is it's just spectacle really, but usually you don't even get it out of, you know, most television, but like, uh, have you watched Daredevil? I have. Yes. The Kingpin, Vincent oh, D'Onofrio's I- Kingpin is, is magnificent. Right. Incredibly sympathetic and super evil. And dangerous and... Yeah, just so broken. Um, I, you know, I've been watching the new season of Hannibal, too, and I feel that way about so many characters on that show. I mean, the, this season, the Red Dragon, is this character that, like, on one hand, I'm, I'm so rooting for him, and on the other, he's this horrible character who, who kills all these, you know, I just... And I find myself very conflicted as a person watching this and thinking, how can I root for this for this person and it's because he's so very human right he wants the same things we all want he wants love and acceptance and and to to not be broken and we can all really i think empathize with that yeah there's there's some way in which the world doesn't fit for everybody i, I was having this conversation with my my sister about about her daughter and there were some some they're not even major issues but it was was like some something around add and the question i asked was well is it that um she really has a problem or it's not convenient for the teacher or, and whatever it is, like everybody has something that you just, it just doesn't fit. Like I I, I was dyslexic growing up and I'm a writer as a profession, like, and have been like, you just have to figure out how to make it work. But sometimes, you know, and like, that's a really good, that's a great point. Great motivation. Um, uh, So what about, um, I have to ask you about this. Um, What what about like, Femme fatales. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, femme, femme fatales. I mean, you write erotica, right? I mean, what's I do, there's, yeah. there's that there's a whole vein of stuff there that um, it's very yeah. dangerous because you're out of control, right? It's really interesting, right? If you look at gender roles in evil um, or gender roles in villain, right? There's there's this sort of tradition of of women only can fit into certain kinds of villainry. And, you know, Femme Fatale, of course, is one of those. And, and you know, sort of the Black Widow, I don't mean the character, I mean the sort of concept of, you know, killing your husbands. Yeah. Um, and so there's all these, like, there, there are these specific ways in which men are supposed to be evil and women are supposed to be evil. And, you know, some of them are played out in, in the real world, right? There are more male serial killers that we know of than there are female. Um, and, and so I, but I love to break that down and why, why do we have that perception and how can we play with that and, and how can we make, you know, how do you make a character who, you know, who doesn't subscribe to those specific gender roles that the the sort of fiction, the literature puts out there and is really true to themselves. And, and, you know, I, my favorite part of creating a character is sort of delving into their motivations and what's broken. I love, I love, I love sort of what's broken in you. Let me poke it a little. (laughs) Yeah. What do they need on the inside? Because it's that, yeah, it's, and it's that internal story that really makes it interesting. Like, um, you, we kind of know from, from a lot of conventions, like we know what's going to happen at the end. Like we know they're going to win, right? There's not going to be a surprise twist, but it's what happens. Like, uh, it's what makes the Godfather 
a really great story. It has a dual ending. Like he wins at the end because you, you've got your sort of he's overcome all his opposition and inside he's just right. You know, he's he's turned into this evil thing. Right, right, which is which is the thing we all fear, I think, or one of the things we all fear, which is that, you know, if I look too deeply into my heart, you know, what does that internal landscape look like and how scary it is, is it and how often of a pers- person am I really? And, and I think in a lot of ways, villains allow us to say, well, I'm not that bad, so I'm, I'm okay. I'm a good human. I'm fine. Um, and, we, and that's part of the reason that I think we love them. Yeah, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. <laughs> Right. Yeah, or that girl. When, when in essence, you know, um, you really, you really could be, right, <laughs> right, for sure, right. It doesn't. I mean, we know that it doesn't take very much to sort of turn people from, you know, and there are there are levels, right? There, there is that sort of idea of people who struggle with with these these fantasies of doing horrible things, but know that they're wrong, and they keep them kind of contained. And then there are the people who struggle with the fantasies and know that they're wrong, but act on them. And then there are people who have these horrible fantasies and don't know that they're wrong, right? And actually think that they're right and are sort of self-righteous about the, the acts that they do. And there's all these psychological steps on the way to becoming evil that are, are really interesting to explore as a, as a writer, I think. And, oh my God, I just remembered this. I worked with this, uh, early in my career, I worked at this advertising agency with this, this uh, woman who is really nuts but that's not unusual for advertising <laughs> really a, I mean a brilliant writer and she told me this story about a friend of hers she had in school who would and I believe her I mean for all her craziness there's no reason for me to doubt this is not true <laughs> who would go into grocery stores and pinch unattended children oh my gosh and when they would spin around and look at her with tears in her eyes and ask why or whatever she would go oh I'm sorry and and I asked, of course, why? And uh, and Carol asked why as well. And the answer she gave, and this is the most evil thing of all, she said, when you lie to children, they trust you. Oh, my gosh. I'm so using that. <laughs> take it. Take it. I forgot about it. I mean, like totally until just now. You know, it's interesting. I was just having a conversation sort of along those lines of like, you know, when we watch movies or, or we read stories or even real life stories where, you know, something bad happens to an adult person, we react differently than when something happens to like a young child or to an, to like an animal perhaps. And, and part of it, you know, is that, is this idea that, you know, they're so trusting and they're so, they, they believe in us and they believe that we will save them and rescue them. And so when that trust is broken by villainy and evil de- deeds and, and those kind of things, it's, it's, there's this impact that doesn't happen when that thing happens to adults. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's visceral. And it's like, um, well, it's like the thing with, um, what's his face? Uh, um, the NFL player who had, who was fighting dogs. Oh, um, uh, I can't remember. Uh, Vic. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mike, Michael Vic. So yes. you, you had him, uh, doing that and, People got very upset and he got drummed out of the NFL and thrown into prison. And then you have other instances in the NFL. And I'm not really a big football guy, so I don't really know who any of these people are. But um, uh, who, you know, they're on camera beating their wives and girlfriends. And then nothing really happens to them. But if they had kicked a dog on film, like, that'd be it. Right. Um, right. It's that sense of trust. And it's it's not... Right, if you think about it, like why is it? Why do we react more viscerally to someone, 
you know, uh, attacking a dog than we do someone attacking another human being. And, and, you know, there's probably a lot of complex reasons for that. And it's not right, but I think a lot of people still have that, have that response. I, I mean, I think it's, it, it's, it's absolutely wrong and wrongheaded, but I say that and I feel the same way. Like, oh, you, you hurt that dog? I mean, yeah. It's- I mean, it's the whole, there's that whole website called Does the Dog Die, right? That looks at movies and, and TV and asks, you know, and there's no, there's no website that says Does the Human Die? Because most movies, somebody dies, right? And we're oh, really yeah. going to do that. But like, you know, if the dog's going to die, I'm like, no, can't watch it. Sorry. Yeah. And it's the, um, it's, it's the really, uh, it's code. Like you have a problem if you write a screenplay and you have a limited amount of time to characterize somebody as bad. And some of the cop-outs, of course, is, I mean, like the easiest one is literally just have him kick a dog. Oh, okay. That's the asshole. Yeah, for, absolutely. That's, that's really true. That is such a short code. Um, it probably, uh, probably be a good, uh, writing challenge to figure out how you could have a, a character kick a dog and then be sympathetic. Right, right. You would have to really go into that internal landscape of why the fear and the all the other stuff that that would allow us to find that sympathetic. Um, hmm. So here's a question. Um, so the the whole um, it's not even really evil. It's just sort of powerful and scary. Anything, anything lustful or erotic or that response. There's always something taboo about it. Um, but it changes through time, right? So right. if you look at like, uh, uh, I always mess them up. Lawrence, um, I'm trying to remember the book. Uh, I read a couple of his. D.H. Uh, Lawrence, right? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't seem shocking at all anymore. <laughs> right. Like it's like this is like really someone <laughs> put a brown paper cover on this. <laughs> Right, it is, it is ever evolving, isn't it? And and it and it swings. The pendulum swings really hard, right and left, depending on kind of the era, right? I mean, there was stuff written way before that that was not considered shocking, and then in that era, things became shocking that hadn't been. And you know, we we go back and forth on the pendulum again and again. Um, yeah, like, we'll settle in the middle. Yeah, like like shock a Roman nobleman of, of a certain <laughs> era, and it just wasn't going to happen. Right. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's it's so fascinating to me how that's such a cultural creation, and yet uh, so often we treat it as though it is it is sort of this you know rock, this foundation that has always existed and always been the same, and everyone should know. And and you know, it changes from not just from time to time, but from location, from city, from family. Right. It's, it's what is taboo, what is shocking, is is continually changing. Um, and you, you know, you can change it yourself in today's modern world by flying from one part of the country to another. And the thing, I mean, to engage in half-assed cultural criticism here, um, uh, <laughs> the, the thing, the thing that occurs to me is like, I want some taboos, um, because then, I, but I don't want them to be very rigorously or violently enforced because that makes things more fun. Right. Like there I. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead, please. Well, I was going to say, you know, that, that there is this sort of conversation in, in the erotica circles that, you know, every time someone comes out and bans an erotic book, all of the erotic writers make more money, right? Because the fact that it is suddenly a newly taboo is so, is actually a driver for people for sales, right? It's a driver for people to 
to get in there and discover what's taboo and, and kind of have their own little secret thing. And, you know, of course, we will never tell people who are boycotting our books that because right, it's, it's really good for us. But they actually think that they're decreasing sales. And, in fact, by raising the level of taboo, they are raising the level of, of desire for that thing. Yeah, you're, you're increasing the perceived value of it for sure. So I had um, I had the the last book I released, um, uh, Merchant Adventure. I put it up for a book bub, and it did, it really it really ran up the charts, and it did very well. And for an independent author like man, that's just oh yeah, good. I was feeling really good about myself, and I noticed that on either side of me on um, uh, on one of the Amazon lists that I was on were members of a book called the Saw Bear uh, Sawman Wear Bear Trilogy. I don't know and that. It was all, all hairy-chested men, oh, you know, sure. paranormal romance. Now, I, I don't, like, I don't, I don't fault, like, anything that gives someone entertainment, like someone enjoyed writing it, someone enjoys reading it, like, I think diversion, right, is, life is hard. So if you just, <laughs> enter, if you just entertain somebody, you've done some pretty noble work, really. Absolutely. Um, everybody needs a break. But I was like, wow, I saw a man wear bear. I, not only did I not know that existed out there, but... It's like maybe um, maybe you should just keep your head down and keep working and just write another book, you know. <laughs> that is true of all of us, isn't it? I feel that way all the time. Just all right, leave the leave the thing that you're looking at alone and go write another book. <laughs> so, what's your favorite evil scheme? Oh, um, that's a really good question. Do I have a favorite? Um, well, but let me give you an example, and before okay. you answer, because this one you can probably use too. Okay. I'm going to use it as well, but it wasn't originally mine. So steal away. Okay. Um, I came across this story and I'm uh, of this uh, woman. I, I can't remember her name, but she was married to a guy in like the 18, let's call it 1870s, 1850s in England, sometime like that. And this guy was, uh, uh, her husband was a doctor and he was a notorious philanderer. So he runs off to the United States and leaves her. Hmm. Um and just just leaves. Well, she disappears, and somebody starts to investigate. And in this in the cellar of the house they had, they find some freshly disturbed earth, and they dig up a body. And then they go get the guy in America, bring him back to England, and hang him. Holy cow! Except it turns out the body wasn't even her. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. <laughs> she goes out, kills Love. somebody else, buries her in the cellar just to get the guy, and she lives happily ever after. Wow. I do love revenge stories. Revenge stories are fantastic. Um, you know, it's funny because I, I – and I'm and, and part – I wonder sometimes if that's because I'm not a revenge person, right? Like it, revenge is not sort of my, one of my natural kind of emotions, and so I wonder if that's part of the reason I love them so much. Um, but you know, he, so here's my favorite kind of evil and I, this may or may not answer your question, but I will tell a story of my own that has stuck with me forever and ever. And it's true every time I think of the word evil, um, there, I read this story when I was probably in high school. That's how long it stuck with me in the newspaper about this guy who died in his apartment and they, like they found the body, like, you know, a couple of weeks later, he lived alone and when they walked in, his body was wrapped in spider webs, and they discovered that he has oh, he had all of these exotic pets. And so the reason they, they found out that the reason that he had died was because one of his exotic spiders got out and bit him, and it was a poisonous spider, and he died. 
And because he wasn't alive in the house, the radiator like overheated and exploded. And in the explosion, um, like a whole bunch of the cages opened. And so he had like lizards crawling all over him. And he had spiders like, you know, making webs all over him. And he had these other creatures that were like laying eggs in his mouth. And I read this in the newspaper. First of all, I could not believe that it was real. But second of all, I thought it was the most horrific evil thing that I had ever read. And it was not done by a person, right? It wasn't like this character doing this evil thing. It was this confluence of events. And it has stuck with me ever since that like evil is this sort of insidious, ever-present kind of entity that sometimes takes human form and sometimes takes other sort of other forms. And it's one of those things where when I, whenever I think about what I really love about sort of evil and villainry, it's that it's this complex amalgamation of all of these things happening at once. And sometimes they're happening in your internal landscape and it becomes a human. And sometimes they're happening in this external landscape where this guy's beloved pets just sort of, you know, not only do they kill him, but then they just, be, you know, they eat him. They they lay eggs in his mouth. They do all these things. And I thought, all right, I have, I'm officially going to start writing horror because that's the most horrific thing I've ever heard. And it, I mean, you know, I'm I'm 43 and I read that when I was like 18 and I have never forgotten it. Sorry, that's a horrible okay. phrase, isn't it? <laughs> no, no, it's 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 really not because um, now you're gonna think I'm nuts. Um, but uh, I don't I don't find that that actually evil at all. I find that like um, that's like a very nice setup for magical realism. Oh, true. That is you also know, true. like Gabriel Garcia Marquez or yeah. Neil Gaiman could do something with that. Yeah. Um, for- it's also he's also a he's also a candidate for the Darwin Awards. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, really? wh- why not a hamster? <laughs> right, right, and a couple of dogs that are semi wild, and even a poisonous hamster. Like at least you could see him coming. Did I make those? <laughs> I want one of those. I looked at the spreadsheet. Did you not put anything down there that you wanted help promoting? Are you are you all good? Um, you know, I suggested uh, the thing that I put was no thank you evil, which is the. Oh, um, I just thought she said no thank you. The. Cut it off. It's like that's um, a very strange response. No, no, it was, uh, it's no, it's called no thank you evil, and it's their kids game, and so it seemed like an appropriate. Uh, you know, the kids go and fight evil, and and um, it just seemed like a good thing to kind of mix with the theme. So. So can you want to tell tell me a little bit more about this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we we kickstarted it this summer, and it's a game. Um, players as young as five, uh, and then players up to sort of fourteen can play. It's a role playing game, um, and it's uh, they basically uh, they can be kind of anything they want. They can be a pirate or a princess or a robot, uh, you know, a spy, and then they can they have a companion that goes with them, like a like a tiny T Rex or a, an invisible friend or a little brother. Uh, or a uh, dust bunny so they have and then they go into this place called storia um, and they basically uh, they basically vanquish evil as a group Um, and it's you know it's kind of weird and wacky like you might you might find yourself in a spaceship or uh, in you know jack and the beanstalk or the monster museum and so there's all these kinds of cool weird uh, imaginative places Um, And often in that game, evil is, you know, we tried to make evil not quite so straightforward, even for the kids. And so, like, evil is often someone who, you know, uh, like, I just wrote this story about somebody who, 
uh, you know, steals a waffle and he steals it because he, he loves waffles so much. And so, you know, they, they have to get the waffle back because it's a special waffle. And so he's, he's evil, right? He stole the waffle, but he did it for these really kind of complicated and interesting reasons that give the kids some, some ways to con- have a conversation with him rather than just sort of poke him in the eye. <laughs> I'm sold. When's it out? <laughs> it comes out in February. So no, um, I, I honestly, I really, I love the, I have a three and a half year old son oh, and I'm, I'm just waiting for him to get older, you know, old enough to play all these games with him. Yeah. Um, we, you know, it's been fun. We've done a lot of play tests and, um, we just went to Gen Con and did a lot of playtests, and our eleven-year-old uh, GM was running the game for a bunch of four, five, seven-year-olds, and you know we've had kids. Oh, as young that's as awesome! Two. Yeah, we've had kids as young as two play, but but she was very much just there to be with her older siblings, and like was like, I have a pony and I'm a princess, and this is awesome. And you know, at two, she didn't really grok the rules, but she had a good time. <laughs> I'm not sure about her older siblings, who were kind of like, no, you have to roll the dice now. <laughs> Yeah, but but on some level, like all the rules are there just to kind of give you the feeling of I have a pony and I'm a princess and this is awesome, right? Right, for sure. And, you know, Uh the rules are super simple. And so it's really all about the story. And, you know, they get to help make the world. It's like, okay, you come around the corner and you see a castle. What does it look like? And then they actually get to help sort of build the world, which is one of the things, you know, drawing their characters are very into that. That's very fun. And so... Um, so it's been really fun to work on. It's very different from my other stuff. <laughs> which, um, you know, I just wrote this whole story in rhyme, and I was like, this is fun and awesome. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's I, I like being able to do both, for sure. 